Would you please bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us life and given us not just life, but abundant life in Christ. And I think of Paul's words in Ephesians that take us through the, the process of the gospel, that we were dead in our trespasses following the, the prince of the power of the air that is at work within the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, following the passions of our flesh and mind. And then it says, but Christ has seated us in the heavenly places. That, Lord, you would raise us to new life. And, Lord, there's so many things in this world that we think give us life and that we think hold the key to happiness and prosperity and joy. And they all find an end. But you, you, O oh Lord, offer us eternal life. And offer, as you told the woman at the well, water that leaves us thirsty no more, that truly satisfies us. So, Father, as we come to your word, that many of us just discussed in Adult Bible Fellowship is, is useful for teaching, for rebuking, reproof, Training in righteousness, Lord, we pray that you would do those things through your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now when it, when it comes to hunting and fishing, there is a world of difference between going to Bass Pro Shop and buying a bunch of new gear with bold claims that may be true and having success in the field. There's a big difference between those two things. I mean, anyone with disposable income can go buy new rods and reels and tackle, or in the case of hunting, can buy things to make you not smell like the things you shouldn't and smell like the things you should, give you a shirt that makes you look like a tree, and a, then a whole bunch of fake animals that you can put out in the field that would invite in real animals and other things that make noises like real animals. So real animals will hopefully come in and then you can shoot them with a rifle that costs as much as your car. But there's a big difference between having the money to buy all those things and then having the knowledge and experience to consistently have a chance at seeing and harvesting your target species. Money cannot buy the experience and really what ultimately comes down to the ability to think like the thing that you are after. To think like, what does my food eat? this time of year. When is it active? What noises will chase it off? What noises will bring it in? 
How can I set the stage to draw in my supper? And the hunter fisherman cannot afford to think like someone who lives in a house, to think like a teacher, or to think like an engineer. They have to think like the animal in order to have a chance at acquiring said animal. They have to think like something they are not. They have to go against a lot of their own natural tendencies. Last week we were reading and Jesus was having a conversation with the disciples and he said, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, oh, you're, you're, they basically boil it down to you're a miraculous reappearing of a prophet. And they list out some options. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And as we are getting ready to read, picking up now in Mark 8.31, Jesus is going to tell the disciples and us, through Mark's faithful recording, of their need to have their mindset on the things of God, because our earthly understanding of what a Messiah is falls way too short of who the Messiah actually is. And if we are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then we need to continue in growing in our ability to think of the things of God and not the things of man. And it was monumental last week when Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, a king like David. And it brought with it notions of, of certain victory and deliverance. And I imagine from other sections of the Gospels and Acts 1, Maybe it brought with it some geopolitical notions that Israel was going to rise up from under the reign of Rome. That they were once again going to be the kingdom they were always meant to be. And Jesus is about to challenge His followers in how they think about a Messiah following the Messiah as opposed to following a Messiah. So read with me, starting in Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And three days later, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels and will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Following Jesus does not mean that we shelve our preferences and ideas for a while. It means that we peel them off and fully embrace Jesus as the king who saves us. Being part of the kingdom of God means following the cross-bearing way of Jesus. When we follow the cross-bearing way of Jesus, we find a sacrificial king. We had to split this up from last week, but I think we need to understand this. That this is, this is flowing in conversation where Peter says, you are the Christ. He goes, well, don't, don't tell people that yet. And then he starts teaching them. Here's what it means that I am the Christ. And he talks about, I must suffer, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. So there's a suffering, a rejection, and a killing, and this is what the Son of Man not will do, not has to do, must do. This is problematic for a Messiah. And Peter sees the problem here. And for Peter and the disciples, what Jesus is saying here, I'm the Messiah, the Son of Man must do these things. This is not a paradigm shift this is a paradigm explosion. This is completely blowing up their perception of what a Messiah is and does. A paradigm shift is when a husband has to think like a wife, but an explosion is when he has to think like a deer, to borrow on earlier. Although in some unfortunate cases that may be reversed. A Messiah in the minds of, a disciple, of the disciples would never have to suffer at the hands of another. David died of a ripe old age and natural causes. He never died in battle. He never suffered rejection from the, chiefs, from the chief priests and the scribes. He would never suffer at the hands of another. Keller points out, that it would have been one thing for Jesus to have said, well, I'm going to have a pretty difficult fight and it might not go too well for me. Just know I got a battle in hand. I mean, a Messiah can go to war and maybe lose, but a Messiah to just lay himself down. How could this be? And so Peter takes it upon himself to educate Jesus on what a Messiah is. Have you ever felt the need to correct the Lord? I think sometimes we can be pretty hard on Peter. Uh, and, he, and he opens himself up for it. He, uh, he seems to, at least by Mark's account, seems to have a little more foot and mouth disease than the other disciples. 
But I think we'll see this week and, and next week especially that, that the only way we would have fared better is had we been silent. Jesus, you shall never die. He rebukes Jesus for such a thought. I pray that we would follow in the lesson that Peter learns. And even when we don't understand, and especially when we don't understand, that we'd be trusting of the Lord's sovereignty when it doesn't make sense to us. And learning ever more to think in the terms of heaven and the kingdom of God. And so Peter turns to rebuke Jesus. Jesus turns, he looks at the disciples, and he rebukes Peter. But there, there, there's a lot of thought that he's really rebuking all the disciples for this thought. This thought that Jesus should never suffer because they don't know what they're saying. If Jesus had listened to their rebuke, their own sins would have never been forgiven. And so Jesus gives what is a pretty harsh rebuke to Peter. And while he's looking at the disciples and he's rebuking Peter, there's also a rebuke going on in the spiritual realm here. He doesn't think that Peter magically turned into Satan. But he knows that Peter is adopting ideologies that are not of the Lord, that are of the world, that are of the flesh, that are contrary to the gospel work. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Remember the, the story last week of the blind man being healed? And Jesus heals him. He goes, what do you see? And the guy goes, well, I see people, but they really look like trees. And so Jesus heals him again, and then he sees clearly, Peter here is the blind man. He has just seen, you are the Christ. But he has not yet seen that the Christ, the Messiah, is also the suffering servant. He sees Jesus a little as the Messiah, but he doesn't see him fully as the crucified king. His eyes haven't been opened all the way. And Peter has great motives here. Peter has a deep love for Jesus. But his human-centered ideas of what a, who, what a Messiah is and does is contrary to God's kingdom, and it is clouding his vision of who the Messiah is in a way that's contrary to his own salvation. The bad news is I don't think Peter's the only one in history who's ever suffered from this. That we all have a tendency to mix worldliness into our reading of the Bible. We all have a tendency to, to try to incorporate the things we love, the philosophies we love with Jesus. And in so doing, we set our, our minds on the things of earth and we're not looking to the kingdom. And so we come back to why Jesus must suffer. 
Let's have our minds on the things of God. Why is this a must? And the shortest answer is that sin demands a price that we can't pay. In borrowing from, from Keller here, if I were to go to Gabus Ford, steal a brand new Mustang, total it, there'd be some consequences. And Gabus Ford could say, well, as long as you... They, they could say, all right, all right, you gotta, you got to pay. you got to pay. There needs to be restitution. And so one option is restitution. And maybe they're merciful, and I just pay that out of my pocket because I rolled deep. Um, not true. Um, I don't have Mustang disposable income. Um, they could say this, this comes through restitution. Or they could say we forgive but then what Gabus does is they eat the cost of that. They completely lose the cost of that car. They, have to, they absorb the cost of that in themselves. There's no third option of me being free and Gabus Ford not losing money on the stolen Mustang that I totaled. You see that? And so what my sin does is my sin creates this damaging blow and it creates a debt that I, that I need to pay and I'm not able to pay. And no matter what, I won't be able to pay. And so Christ comes and says, I will absorb the cost of your debt from your sin on myself. Now here's the thing. God doesn't need a relationship with any of us. All his relational needs are met within himself, within the Trinity. He doesn't need any of us. God isn't up there going like, oh man, I'm so deprived. I know, I need a chuck. <laughs> that is not a thought in God's mind. But God is loving and gracious and desiring of relationship. But the only way for that relationship to happen is for him to absorb the cost. The only way, Keller says, God can pardon us and not judge us is to go to the cross and absorb it into himself. This is why Jesus says, I must suffer and die. It is because he loves us. That God's love is, is demonstrated in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus' must statement, this threefold must, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must die, while with it adding the resurrection on the third day, is this contrary victory. It's an out-of-this-world victory in an out-of-this-world war. And it also shows the great unmatchable love of God. And it is this love of God manifested in Christ that it, it's on this love that we need to focus our minds and hearts so that as we move into the next section, we can look at this love of God, we can focus on the one saying me, 
and find it to be life-giving because when we read sections like this next section in the Gospels, if we do not focus on the me, if we do not focus on Christ, the glory of Christ, the, the unmatchable love of God, then they just become crushing and impossible. And so being a part of the kingdom of God, following the cross-bearing way uh, means following the cross-bearing way of Jesus. When we follow in the cross-bearing way of Jesus, we find that we get a cross and a better life. Let's read verses 34 to 38, and I want us to listen closely. These are hard words, and they are important words, and they are life-giving words. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For who... For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. As I said, the key here is to look at the me, and it's only when we consume ourselves in the me, in Jesus Christ, that the rest of this becomes freeing instead of crushing. It is the heart of seeing Jesus as Lord, as the Lord who loves us. And when we look at the me, we see that this is actually a pretty good deal. The problem is, is it usually takes us a while to get to the me because we're too busy looking at denying ourselves and taking up a cross. And what it feels like we will lose and what it feels like it may cost us. <clears throat> when we see Jesus as the Lord who loves us, we more clearly see our Messiah. And we find that, that we are a little bit like the blind man too. Where we come to know Jesus as Lord and we are in this continual struggle to see clearly instead of seeing trees walking around. And we have a need. You know, this isn't just an instruction if anyone would come and deny himself. We have a need to deny ourselves. It's essential to becoming who God created us to be. It's a way of acknowledging our fallenness. Before Christ, what do we have that we really want to hold on to? That we're dead in our trespasses? That we're following the prince of the power of the air? That we're a child of wrath like the rest of mankind? Sign me up! And it feels like it's going to cost us everything. It feels like it's going to cost us ourselves. But when we come to Christ when we receive our new identity in Christ, what we realize is we, we, we are then able to achieve the truest version of ourselves, who God created us to be, because it's only in Christ that we can get to that. 
And we think these words that we need to deny ourselves and that I should take up a cross is shocking. But I pray that it would be more shocking to us that the Son of the Most High God would come and take on a cross for my sake than that I should take on one for his. It should be more shocking to me that Jesus would come down from glory and take on a cross for me than that I would ever think of suffering for him. Suffering for him should be a joy Of course I'll do that. Look how great he is. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Could we see this new life, this new identity in Christ, the redemption, the sanctification process that the Holy Spirit does in us, the promise of eternal life? This is a major upgrade. I mean, how many of us, when the lottery reaches like $5 billion or whatever stupid number it gets to with all those zeros, if you thought you could honestly spend two bucks on a ticket and win that, you'd do it. I know there's ethical stuff, right? But if it was really guaranteed, you'd do it. Here's this guarantee. That if I say, you know what? I have, I have a lot wrong in me. I'm going to deny that. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to take up this cross, follow him as my Lord, walk in the way in which he walked, be proud of his name and his ways, set my things above, then I'm going to find something infinitely better than what I left behind. And we might even get to the point where we're like, denying myself, I'm finding richer joys than I ever could have before. But we need to drop the world and pick up a cross. Keep in mind, Jesus saying this, we know for the disciples there's this paradigm explosion that the Messiah would also be the suffering servant. But here we need to remember, he's the Messiah. And we are in no position to barter and negotiate with a king. J.C. Ryle says this, Salvation is undoubtedly all of grace. It is offered freely in the gospel, to the chief of sinners, without money, without cost. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But all who accept this great salvation must prove the reality of their faith by carrying the cross of Christ. They must not think to enter heaven without trouble, pain, suffering, and conflict on earth. They, They must be content to take up the cross of doctrine the cross of living a a life which the world ridicules as too strict or righteous. They must be willing to crucify the flesh, to mortify the deeds of the body, to fight daily with the devil, to come out from the world and lose their, their lives if need be for Christ's sake and for the gospels. These are hard sayings, but they cannot be evaded. The words of the Lord are plain and unmistakable. If we will not carry the cross, we shall, not, we shall never wear the crown. 
Heavy as the cross may seem, Jesus will give us the grace to bear it. We need to lay down the world and pick up the cross. And Jesus raises our objections for us. There's a lot in this world to be gained. There's a lot of pleasure, a lot of material wealth, a lot of ease. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? A long time ago, archaeologists found these giant triangles in the desert of Egypt. And then they found doors into them. And they found in those giant triangles, three-dimensional called pyramids, that there was a lot of gold. Because there was this thought that when you died, you got to take everything with you. So let's say, for example, that when Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and whoever else who's ridiculously rich that you can think of, dies, that they get to take it all with them. And they walk up to the pearly gates with their wagon in tow of Bitcoin and dollars and all these other currencies and stocks. And they come to the pearly gates and they say, what do you have to pay for your sin that you may enter heaven? And they say, Bitcoin and stocks. Billions and billions of dollars. I'll see my sin and I'll raise it a Tesla. And the answer will be, it's not enough. It's not enough. What can a man give in return for his soul? Absolutely nothing. And so we need to lay down this pursuit, this stuff the world offers. It means nothing. It also means that there's there's a sense of security that we need to deal with because our security is found in carrying a cross. We are the church of Christ. We are his body, led by the head, who is Jesus, seated on the throne. What other security in this world do you think you could hang on to that's going to be better than that? Last week, I I ended by talking about there's some of you who have these these performance-enhancing eyewear to help you see clearly because you can't do it on your own. And I bragged, and I'm about to do it again, that God has given me 20-20 vision. Peter had this moment of clarity with 20-20 vision. Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus, you are Lord. We're going to sing songs. We're going to mean it. But we're going to mean it like the frozen chosen and worship like this. But here's what we do. Me, with my 2020 vision, if I took a pair of glasses from any of you and put them on, it would ruin my vision. It would make everything cloudy and fuzzy and give me a headache. And this is what we are so prone to do as believers, that we would come and we'd say, Jesus, you are the Lord. I am a member of the kingdom of heaven. I'm an adopted child of God. And then we'd see some worldliness that looks good and maybe has a couple things that line up with us a little bit. And we'd say, oh, I'm going to put that on. And it distorts our vision, but we kind of like it. 
We need to stop taking the ideologies of the world, taking the treasures of the world, the things the world finds valuable and useful, and combining them with our Christianity. Here's the thing. I've been told I need to carry a cross, okay? So I need to go through life, and I need to carry a cross. The problem is, if I have all my ideas of the world that I like, that I try to Christianize, and I try to carry the cross at the same time, I can't. Carrying a cross takes both hands. We need to leave the world aside. We need to quit muddying the name of Jesus with other stuff, with other ideas, no matter how good they may be on their own in a worldly mindset, and say, my heart only has the capacity for one Savior, and my citizenship only really has one place, and that's in heaven. We need to carry our cross and leave the world to the side. We cannot afford something else. We cannot add the world to our faith. We absolutely need this clear vision that Jesus is our Messiah who suffered out of deep love for us. And calls us to walk with him in a world that rejects him. Which means taking up our cross. And it's going to cost us. And it's going to mean tears. And it's going to mean blood. And it has meant over thousands of years a lot of graves of a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who would have lived a lot longer on earth had they never taken up their cross. And it's going to mean saying, I belong to one king and one kingdom. And anything that contradicts this king and this kingdom and his word, I'm going to put that to the side. Because I'm going to be proud of the name of Jesus and the name of Jesus only. We take up a cross, but we get an infinitely better life when we do. And taking up our cross means that what we quickly think of as closed doors because of suffering. The suffering may not be a closed door, but an open door. It means we fear the Lord and continually look at His love and His supply. It means that we know the exchange rate of our suffering. That while we suffer, God is doing work that lasts eternally. That we will gain a lot more than this world could have ever offered us. A doctor I love and respect said that we tend to think of the kingdom as he of heaven is upside down. But when we see it clearly, it becomes obvious that the kingdom is right side up and we are the ones who are upside down. And may we have the humility to acknowledge that. God, I don't, I mean, what, how different would this be? And Peter said, boy, Jesus, we don't get this at all, but we trust you. Could you teach us more? Could you take us back to the scriptures and show us this?
And finally, when we follow in the cross-bearing way of, of Christ, we find a sure kingdom. Jesus says this. He, you know, I, I'm sure there are some people thinking, I, I don't want to take up a cross. That's the worst execution device created so far in human history. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There is a sureness to this. And what in the world does Jesus mean? There's, here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that some of the people who are standing there today are still alive waiting for the second return of Jesus. That's not what this means. That's not what he's saying. It means there will some that will be alive to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some scholars think that this is alluding to the transfiguration that's about to happen that we'll be studying next week. That Jesus starts glowing Moses and Elijah come, God speaks from heaven, that that's what he's talking about. I think it's more than that. I think he's talking about when he rose from the grave, the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, they started making disciples, and throughout human history where there's been oppression, magically more churches grow because the kingdom of God is greater than any kingdom here on this earth. In the spread of the gospel and the establishment of his church. We long for a day that the kingdom will come in greater power and greater sureness, but we rejoice that already today the kingdom of God is at work, the light of Christ is shining, and it will not be snuffed out. And the strength of this sureness enables a cross-carrying life. And it all points back to the cross of Christ. That Jesus suffered and died. He was rejected. And on the third day he rose so that we can carry a cross, so that we can be part of a kingdom, and so that we can find a life in heaven that is infinitely greater than anything this world has to offer. Amen? Let's pray as those who are going to serve us communion come forward. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this. We rejoice that, Lord, you have sent your Son to not just be our Messiah, but to be the suffering servant. That Jesus... You loved us so much, and God, you loved us so much that the cross became a must. We praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray.